just a warning that this episode of Life on the Land speaks openly about suicide and mental ill health. If you or anyone you know is unwell or in need of assistance, you can call Lifeline on 131114 or Beyond Blue on 1300 22 46 36. Welcome to Life on the Land, a Grazy Her podcast telling stories of women living in rural and regional Australia. I'm Sky Manson, your host for this episode. Today's guest, Katrina Myers from farm business Barham Avocados near the New South Wales Victorian border, oozes energy, enthusiasm and spark. So much so that we bet you'll wonder just how she maintains such high velocity all the time. Well, as you'll learn today, Katrina is not just like this. In fact, she is terrified of depression. The illness has entwined itself into her family, taken the life of her father and given her unexplained pain for many, many years. But not anymore. And she's on a mission to make sure that we never feel as bad as she once did. So if you're feeling it this month as we hurtle towards Christmas or as we support each other through weather adversities like flooding, lost income or opportunity, not to mention the various COVID-19 uncertainties, this stripped bare story of a life reclaimed through lots of hard work is a resource for us all. So the whole farm is a couple of thousand acres, but we grow avocados just on the sand hill area. So we've got one sand hill here and then we actually bought another block about three years ago, which is another sand hill. And because you have to have really good draining soils for avocados. So the avocados, we've now got about 40 acres of avocados. Um, and the rest of the farm is pretty marginal, kind of that heavy clay soil. It was actually my dad's parents that bought it in the late 70s. And they were Mallee farmers. So they had um, farms over in the Mallee. And I think they were looking, they were sort of interested in getting an irrigation block. And I think at the time there was something to do with um, the barley. You could, you know, you could um, transport barley from New South Wales and there was different rules or something. So I think that was kind of handy for them to get a farm that was in New South Wales. So they bought the farm over here and then no one lived here for, I don't know, five or ten years. And then when mum and dad finished uni and they were, I don't know, 22 or three, they, they moved back here then and they sort of bought half of the farm then and set it up, you know, from there. And they just, when they first moved back here, it was just like lucerne, cattle, bit of a mixed enterprise sort of farm. And, yeah, they actually built the house that we live in all by themselves. They made it out of mud bricks and built the whole house and it's all recycled timbers and mud bricks and 
I'm always just in awe of that because they were 23 and they built a house by themselves. <laughs> Amazing. And is that what I can see on Zoom behind you? It's incredible. Yes. They call it Claire's story where the roof, you know, comes together and then there's a little bits of windows. So everyone always thinks it's two-story, but it's a really cool design and, yeah, beautiful. And it's still modern now. It's an incredible house, really. Like you just appreciate it more and more now that we live here and just, you know, the, the work that went into building it is just amazing. The interesting thing is that your business is all about avocados, but it wasn't always an avocado farm. How did it come to be? Oh, well, I love telling this story so much because it's such a beautiful story because it was actually my mum's mum, Gwen Hines, who is probably one of my greatest inspirations. I just adore her. She was just the most wonderful woman. And she actually gave mum and dad the money to plant the avocado trees when they first moved here back in the early 80s. And she said, I think you should grow some avocados because, you know, and back then they were very much this luxury thing that no one really knew of and there was none being grown around here. I don't even know how she worked out or how they worked worked out that they would grow here, Mm. but it was all her idea. And so she gave them the money and they planted 100 trees and there was sort of all sorts of different varieties and it was just a mix a mismatch of them and it was very much a hobby then and people would just you know family would come and at Christmas and everyone would pick some avocados and take them home and you know like no idea really how to look after them properly or anything but they they sort of did okay and then I think mum and dad always had I think the dream of sort of making that more of an enterprise on the farm but it was a lot of money and a lot of capital to set it up you know to actually go into avocados on a, on a large scale needed quite a lot of capital. So and the so, processing capacity and the irrigation and all those sort of things? Everything. The setup costs are, are quite a lot. Like I think it's about $50,000 an acre to set up um, and you've got to wait. And back then it was sort of, you know, seven years before you'd get fruit. Mm-hmm. You know, no one really knew how to get the fruit quicker. Like we can get production now sort of four years, but back then it was a long wait. And so they didn't ever really have the money to set it up properly. Yeah, and irrigation is a big part of the cost of setting up for sure because you need a lot of, um, you know, infrastructure for that. So it wasn't actually till after Dad died. My dad died in 97 and then, you know, then Mum, actually some people approached Mum who turned out to be dodgy in business, unfortunately, but they were sort of friends of ours and they said, why don't we grow avocados? And, you know, why don't we make that, you know, we'll go into business with you. And so that actually gave mum the opportunity to stay on the farm and, and it was something that she felt that she could manage by herself. And so she then planted uh, 2,000 trees in 97 and that became sort of the main enterprise then. Yeah. Amazing. So do you think that your parents, there was an entrepreneurial spirit in any way about them? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the fact that they came back and built a house, you know, like that just, it's still, Tim and I talk about it all the time. Like, how did they do that? You know, Mm. 23 Mm. and they just built a house and made all the mud bricks themselves. They did, I mean, they always joke, my uncle George, who's my dad's brother, who I'm very close to, and he now lives in Barham and he's just awesome. He said they they always say they built it with a, what do they say, a meat axe. A meat, a meat cleaver and a chainsaw <laughs> because it's all this, you know, beautiful old timbers and all sorts of things and, and lots of, it's very, very rustic. But, yeah, they were definitely entrepreneurial and just had a go at things, I think, yeah, you know, they like they just like were willing. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. Yes. And and I think, to be honest, you know, I mean, there's 
I love the world of entrepreneurship and new business and all that kind of thing. But farmers in themselves are very entrepreneurial. You know, just being a farmer is you've got to be entrepreneurial. You are constantly innovating. You're constantly managing all sorts of different things. You've got to be able to survive lots of challenge. And, yeah, just being a farmer is, is entrepreneurial, in its, entrepreneurial in itself, I really think, yeah. So when you look at both your mum and your dad individually, how do you think they influenced you individually as a person? What have they each given you? Mm, yeah, so much in so many different ways. I think dad was this very sort of vivacious, um, expressive, wonderful, big personality, you know, like the Warns are. We always, that's that's dad's like family, you, are the yes. Warns. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Everyone says that I'm a lot like him and, and, a, and a real Warn, that's what we always say. And, you know, really community-minded, involved in a lot of community things, very passionate, very argumentative, I always, which is also me. <laughs> I remember <laughs> lots of big family dinners where we would go over to the Mallee and, you know, everyone have these great debates and discussions about things and it was always around the dinner table and very, you know, just good fun, you know, like great debate but in a very beautiful, loving, we all, you know, everyone still loves each other at the end of the night, you know, that's one of my fondest memories. And, you know, yeah, very, very much a community person and super passionate about just being involved with the community and, and doing lots of things and, you know, being on land care and in the tennis club and all sorts of involvement in the community. That's what I remember from dad. And, and also just a bit of a daredevil and a bit, you know, a little bit wild sometimes. I remember that about him too. He had quite a reputation for being a bit crazy, mm-hmm. um, which sometimes comes out in me. I'm probably a little bit more reserved. And from mum, I think mum, just that resilience, like she's such a stoic, resilient woman in so, so many ways. As a child, I think mum was, you know, she was so dedicated to the horses and she really, I think she felt that she missed out on a lot of stuff because she was desperate to ride horses growing up and she didn't feel like she had the opportunity. So she really gave us every opportunity as children to you know, have the have great horses and learn from the best instructors, and and she, you know, taught me a lot about yeah resilience, and but also looking after, you know, being able to look after animals and being able to look after and learn as you go, and and there was something I often think about this, like riding horses growing up and going to lots of different instructors and doing all that sort of thing all the time. Like you do, you you learn a lot, you know, looking after an animal yeah. and then having lessons and learning to be resilient and and learning to take criticism. I really learned that as a young child as well and, and actually take it on board. And mum would always say whenever we went to instructor, you know, even if you don't like what they say, you just do it while you're there and you listen and you take it on <laughs> and you can do it what you want when you come home but always listen to the instructor. And I think that's really served me really well in terms of being able to, you know, take constructive criticism and, and always learn and grow from that rather than being, like, offended by it. Mm, yes, such a so mother. So it's been so nurturing kind still. of in every way. Yes, definitely. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about the awful day when you learned that you had lost your father, your dad. So, yes. So 97 and I was away at boarding school. I'd just gone to boarding school actually. So I was year 10, 15 and it was the first term and it was March and 
I loved boarding school. Like I absolutely loved it. You know, I was just having such a good time and I'd really found my place. I had such a beautiful group of friends and I was just, just loved it. Like it was just it was my happy place. And I was just in history class and the, the I think it was, oh, someone came in to get me, one of the admin ladies. She said, oh, you need to come to the principal's office. And I thought, oh, that's funny because I never get in trouble. Like what's happened? And I was a very well behaved, a really good kid, you know, loved school. Anyway. I went to the principal's office and I got there and my nan and pa were sitting there, my beautiful nan, who I mentioned earlier, mum's mum, yeah, and and my gorgeous grandfather, who were just two of the most wonderful people in the world and they just looked like they'd seen ghosts and I looked, they were just pale, you know, they looked and, and they were very, you know, beautiful, vibrant people and I thought, oh, this is, something's wrong. And they sat me down and they said, there's been an accident on the farm and your father's been shot. And I just immediately said, oh, is he dead? Because I could just tell by the way they looked and they said, yes, yes, he is. And so, you know, I just burst into tears and all the emotion came up and then, and then Pa said, oh, well, you know, he's been very depressed. And then, then sort of whacked him and said, oh, John, don't say that. And, and that's when I knew that it was suicide. And I had had absolutely no idea that he was even depressed at all that he was sick that it was it was a complete shock Mm. and it just it it was a complete and utter shock and I just remember just wanting to you know then I went they took me back to their house and then I spoke to mum on the phone and I said oh I just want to stay here I just didn't want to go home Mm. I just wanted to stay Mm. and and mum said oh I think you should come home you know and then yeah it was just it was, and you know, the way I describe it now, it's like one of those sliding doors moments in my life. It's like, you know, in movies, they say it's like you're living someone else's life mm. from that moment. And mm. it is such a weird feeling because I had had this completely normal, normal in italics, mm. childhood where, you know, like a beautiful, loving family, like really very sheltered, very beautiful, normal, you know, great childhood to this point. And then all of a sudden, it was a completely different life. It was like I'm now the child of someone who's taken their life. Like mm-hmm. this is this is not, this is just, it just seemed so unparalleled and yeah. so different to the life that I'd had. It was so weird. And not even, I suppose, in your vernacular, like you, you, you didn't, you sound like you didn't know much about depression, wouldn't have had any vocab around how to explain or even mentally process what's, what this is how did you how did you process it like how did you move forward so the way that we handled it as a family was very much to just not talk about it mm. but I, what I will say is what happened immediately afterwards was there was you know mum it was really really of course ridiculously hard for mum she's quite a private person very stoic and you know there's people everywhere and everyone's around and all that sort of thing but one memory that I do have is that mum took me for this walk and she basically explained to me what had happened from her point of view and why she felt that it had happened in that way and she also wrote this letter to Sarah and I which explained it all you know and I think those two things did help me a lot Mm in my processing and my understanding in that I didn't ever hate dad, like not on a conscious level anyway. The, the, the only way that I ever felt that 
oh, well, he mustn't have loved you enough and, oh, it was so cowardly. It was just by what other people said to me, you know, like so many people, when someone takes their life, all you hear is, oh, how could they leave their children? And then you hear, and it was such a coward, like all of those things, they were always around. But I don't remember actually on a conscious level ever feeling that towards dad because of the way mum had explained it to me. Now, I do now know, looking back all these years later, that I definitely didn't process emotionally what I needed to process. I went back to school a week later and I've literally just pretended like nothing had happened, pretty much. Like, you know, everyone at school knew and I got lots of lovely cards and everyone was great and super supportive, but I just carried on like nothing had even happened. And I know now that that was probably, you know, it definitely wasn't the healthiest way to handle that grief. And and as a family, we pretty much, we never talked about it. We never mentioned his name. Mum hardly ever talks about him still to this day. Um, my Uncle George is really good. He always tells stories and yeah. talks about him lots. And I love that so much. I love hearing stories about him. But I always say it's a very toxic kind of grief when you lose someone to suicide because, I mean, and, and I'm sure there's people that do ha- handle it differently from what we did, but you don't celebrate birthdays. You don't celebrate anniversaries. It's not a healthy grieving. It's like there's so much shame and oh. kind of just guilt around it and, oh. and so much really just deep sadness and, and misunderstanding. And, you know, it's, it's, it's really hard to grieve it in a healthy way. So I really feel like, and I always really struggled with that, not being able to, you see people who lose their parents to like cancer or a heart attack or whatever, and they they all come together for their birthdays and they all come together for the anniversary and, and, and we just never did any of that. And I, I still feel really sad that it just doesn't feel like we were able to grieve it in a healthy way. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's complex. Do you think that that is because it was a, uh, a suicide or that you, just the way that you dealt with the grief in that you didn't, um, it, it, was, it became something that wasn't spoken about? probably because he didn't have the tools and the mechanisms to, to enable that. I think it's because it was suicide and, and especially that 20 years ago, I mean, you know, it was just no one had, like yeah. you say, no one had the words, no one had the capacity to, 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 you know, to deal with it, to understand how to talk about it emotionally and how to understand depression. And, and back then it was like, you know, and what I was told was, well, depression is just a chemical imbalance you know he was really really sick he had a chemical imbalance in the brain and there was nothing we could have done and the I mean the greatest one of the the biggest and the hardest things that I've had to learn in my life is well that's actually not really the truth there is so much that we can do and it's been a really yeah really challenging thing for me to to learn and to understand as an adult is oh actually there's so much that we can do for our minds and our brains and our well-being and there's actually, we can prevent going that way. We could for so many, many more people if we had the tools and the resources and we made different choices and we, you know, showed up for our lives differently. And that has been one of the hardest things for me to deal with, but also one of the most empowering things because it's enabled me to live a completely different life and to really, really focus on actually maintaining my wellbeing and my mental health and be and really prioritise it. So it's a real double-edged sword for me. <laughs> totally. So when was it when your mind and body finally found the time to process the grief? Mm. So 
when I look back now, leaving leaving high school was a really difficult time for me. I went off to uni and I had this terrible, when I look back, very unhealthy relationship with a, with a boyfriend. It was not a good relationship. And, and I drank a lot. You know, every time I get got drunk, everything would come up. And when I was at school, I was in a real safety net where everyone knew and I didn't have to tell anyone the story. Everybody knew what had happened and everybody knew me and it was a really safe zone. Then when I went off to uni, I had to tell the story and, and you know, people's reaction. I just hated dealing with people's reaction. And, and it was, and every, every time I drink, it would all come out and it was a really sort of messy period, but I didn't have any awareness. I was just very unconscious to I always explain it as like, I was living about the first 30 years of my life with the lights off really. And I just, it just sort of happened. And then, and, you know, then I met Tim after that, I broke up with that boyfriend, thank goodness. And then I met Tim who just happens to be the most wonderful human being in the world. Thank goodness. <laughs> I'm so blessed to have him in my life. My gorgeous grandma, who I've talked about a lot, she says she manifested him. Um, <laughs> she, she actually wanted a vet for mum, but ended up with me. Anyway, so I met him and then, you know, we went traveling and did all the things. And, and again, like life was sort of good then, you know, like I, I, I had a lot of fun and things were good and, but then after we had, we started having kids and, you know, we'd lived in the UK for a couple of years, we lived in Bangkok for a year. Then we moved back to Australia to settle down and started having kids. And it was really after I'd had our third baby that, well, it was actually a friend said to me, you know, you really need to sort your shit out. And that was where I realised, I mean, I'd probably, you know, I had known for a little while things weren't great. I had this really difficult friendship with a friend and it was very toxic and it took up a lot of my thinking space, really unhealthy. And I, and I knew things weren't right, but I didn't know what to do about it. I didn't really, I didn't really know that there was, was anything I could do about it, to be honest. I was just mm. sort of doing it, you know, and surviving. Mm. And Did you just think that that was your, that was just your life? That was how it, yep. And you had to just get through 100%. it in the best way you could. Yeah. And it was just in survival. And I didn't even, I didn't even really ever question that there was another way that you could mm. do it, you know. And I knew things weren't right, but yeah, like I just didn't know that there was another way to do it. And so when this friend basically called me, I mean, I, and I still don't know why it was this particular friend at this moment that really called me out and that was the slap in the face that I needed. But it did something about it just rocked me. And I made a, an appointment to go and see a therapist and I, I still remember thinking I was paranoid, like, oh, well, I'm actually fine, you know. I'm, oh, I think I went to the doctor first. That's right. I went to the doctor first and the doctor wanted to put me on medication. I was like, no, I don't think I'd like to try some other things first. I don't really want, you know, this is the first time I've been to like, can I try something else? So I went to the therapist. Then I started meditating and then I started being like, hang on a minute there's all this stuff that I can do. Like I don't have to feel crap. I don't have to feel like I'm out of control. There's actually this whole other way of living. And that really opened my eyes up to so much. And I started listening to podcasts and I started learning all about it and then got really committed to meditation. And just that was eight years ago, I think. And from there, it's just been this, you know, building and building and learning and growing and more going inwards, more understanding myself, more understanding why and who I am in the world and all of that. And it's just been incredible, really. And as I said, like on the one hand, super challenging to know that there's so much that dad could have done for his own mental health, but also extremely empowering to know that there is so much that I can do. And now I'm super dedicated to teaching other people about that too and to showing people what's possible when you do the work on yourself and when you commit to 
prioritizing yourself and showing up for yourself so that you can actually have good well-being, good mental health, enjoy life, survive and thrive through the highs and lows and yeah, just live the good life. We'll be back with Katrina in just a moment, but now a word from today's sponsor. Today's episode of Life on the Land is brought to you by Motherland Village, Australia's first online rural mothers group program, connecting women across the country into their own small personalised group. The program runs for six weeks and will enable you to form meaningful connections and friendships with other rural mums, all in the palm of your hand. Doors are now open for enrolment for February 2022. And this is not your typical mother's group. Motherland's mission is to reduce the isolation felt by rural mums with kids of all ages. You can join the 0 to 3 years age bracket, 4 to 10 or 11 to 18. Because every rural mum deserves access to a mother's group, no matter where you live or how old your children are. Spots are selling fast, so go to www.motherlandaustralia.com.au What did the therapist unlock in you and how, how long did that take and was it very a challenging road? It wasn't, I actually enjoyed that process, to be honest. I think I was so ready. And like I said, like, I was so paranoid. I didn't want to go down the same path as dad. And once you, once I sort of realised that I was depressed, anxious, and I was having all those things, I was like, holy cow, I do not want to. And, you know, they say, I think it's like you, the statistics are that you increase your chances. If your parent takes their life, you're 40% more likely to take your life. Like, it's pretty confronting. So... For me, it was this really just like, oh, thank goodness I can actually do something. And mm. I really enjoyed the process. I had to drive to Melbourne. I used to take myself to Melbourne every two weeks because there was, at, at, again, this was, you know, eight years ago, there wasn't anyone local. And, but it was just, yeah, so we then, I mean, it, it, you know, we went back. We, we took, we go back. We looked at why I was behaving the way I was behaving and, what, you know, why I was feeling the way I was feeling and all of that. And, and, you know, there's lots, and that, this is why they call it the work. Like, it's hard to unpack how you are in the world. It's, it, it is work and it's hard, but it's also worth it. You know, and something my gorgeous friend Meg and I often talk about is the works, it's hard either way. You either stay in survival mode, you stay with anxiety, you stay with mild depression or whatever it is, and it's hard, life's hard, or you do the work, which is really hard, and then it gets to be good. So... For me, it was like, yeah, okay, I'm ready to do this. I, and, and I think also when you lose a parent to suicide or when you suffer from a trauma, you do have an awareness. In fact, you know, I, I thought, of course I'm going to be messed up. <laughs> like in some ways yeah. on one level there was like, well, you know, who doesn't lose a parent to suicide and they're not messed up for the rest of their life. Yeah. So there was that. There's, there's a lot of layers to what I started to realise once I started to go and, and unpack, you know, who I was in the world. Yeah. And I love it. I just love it that your mantra is that you have to do the hard work and turn up, which is something that is, um, you know, it's a phrase that's used quite often, but um, by way of this conversation and also 
people that would know you on social media can sort of see that in a very physical way. So run me through that, what you've learned about doing the hard work and how it works for you. So for me, it's about prioritising myself first, like above all else really. And what I've learned is the more you you prioritise yourself, the better you are for everyone, everyone around you. And there's this real misconception that, you know, it's selfish put yourself first it's selfish to have self-care it's the exact opposite of that um and so now it's it's a a really it's basically my main commitment is is to myself and I get up early it's like start my day at five o'clock because when you have four kids and a farm and all sorts of things happening it's if you don't get well for me if I don't get the self-care done in the morning then it's you know it's I'm tired by the end of the day and it's it falls off you know you don't so prioritizing it in the morning is you know, super important. So for me, it is, well, that's, yes. So that's, so there's the physical hard work to maintain the vessel and then there's the mental hard work. So, you know, when we, when we think about the work, there's the work to look after your body, mind and spirit. And then there's the work to unpack all the things really that hold you back from feeling worthy in the world, from knowing that you're enough and from just feeling like you're worthy just for being you. Like what I've realised is that's the work. Like most people spend their whole lives trying to search externally for not gratification but for knowing that they're okay in the world. Like their identity is attached to what they do and we just want people, we just want to know that we're enough and we matter, you know. And so the work becomes actually unpacking why it is that you don't feel enough just for being you and the layers and the experiences of that life put on you to make you feel like, you have to do all these things to be worthy. And so that becomes the work. And, and often that's really, really deep work. And there's a lot of layers to it. And it's like peeling back the layers of an onion. And, and a lot of our sort of subconscious programming that we don't even know about is, is buried, you know. And so that's a big part of the work as well. But in terms of being able to show up for your life so that you can cope with, because nobody escapes challenge. Nobody escapes hardship. Life is hard. And the choices that we make to show up for our life make those hard things easier to manage, you know, and especially when we're on farms. You know, like just this weekend we had a major storm go through on Thursday Thursday night, a freak storm that just happened to strip through our avocado patch that, you know, our, our greenhouse roof fell down. We've got about 30 trees on the ground. We had fruit fly off everywhere. The pump blew up. And it was just like, you know, this is, this is this reminder to me of why this work is so important because if I wasn't doing the work on myself to understand how I am in the world and to be able to cope when shit hits the fan, then it's very easy easy to spiral downwards because things like this happen all the time. And if I wasn't really aware of how I am, because and what I've realised is about myself too, it actually does really affect me. And I didn't sort of, I try to pretend or not pretend, but on a conscious level, I'm like, yeah, it's fine. I can handle the ups and downs of farming. But as I keep doing this deeper work, I've realised, yeah, it really is a big trigger for me. When things go badly on the farm, it really triggers a lot of old school stuff that comes up about all the hardships of when we were farming. So that's been really interesting too. And I think for the, for, for when, when, we're, when we're tired, when we're not eating well, when we're, you know, feeling exhausted when we're not having meaningful connection with people when we're spending too much time on our own when things like that happen which happen all the time on a farm and all the time in no matter where you are in life it's a lot harder Mm. so that's why 
it's so important to just even just get the basics right to look after your vessel, you know, getting enough sleep, eating healthy, nutritious food, moving your body, having meaningful connection and having downtime. If we could just do those things and prioritise that for ourselves, then it just makes such a big difference. Yet it's the basics that are so hard. I love what you, I just love what you say about farming because it is rife with adversities and also emotional complexities of, you know, how a male and a female and a traditional farmer might work. And, um, and often all these things are dictated by the weather, like it was with you on the weekend. And that is something that's so unique to the industry and the vocation. And especially for you right now, and also for so many farmers at the moment on the east coast of Australia that have just had this, you know, the once in a lifetime crops ripped out, you know, away from them before their very eyes. And so I suppose what's, and you've, you've touched on, you know, what you can do to sort of look after your vessel, but how do you actually work that into your day? Like we do hear often that you need to exercise be in touch, look after yourself. But as a mum of four, how, how have you managed it? So I guess, like I said, for me, it once I realised that you could do all this stuff, it just became a major priority because I am terrified of ending up depressed and ending up like dad, like at the base of it, that's what drives me. And I don't want anyone to end up like that. And it's why I try to talk so passionately about this now. So then, so first of all, it's, well, first of all, it's noticing and having an awareness and, you know, noticing how you are showing up in your life. And if you are super busy and you're not prioritising yourself at all, first step is 100% noticing, which is often the hardest part because we're when we're in the trenches, when we're running around, when everything's crazy and it's hectic and it's busy, we don't even sort of realise that we're not looking after ourselves at all. So first step is notice. And then it's choose. Like you've actually got to choose to prioritise yourself. Like, it really does become a choice. Everybody can say, oh, I'm too busy. Everybody can say, I don't have enough time. Every, you know, that we all have the same amount of time in a day. So it really does become about prioritising and choosing to put yourself first. And then it's about just starting small as well. I mean, sometimes when it comes to, you know, our health or trying to make a change, we, we go for these big lofty goals and then because we can't sustain them, we fall back to where we were and then we end up in the shame spiral and, well, it's all too hard. So starting really small is really important. So when I started, I really attribute meditation as a big part of what's helped me. And when I started meditating, I would just do five minutes a day because honestly, the thought of sitting still for five minutes just seemed almost impossible. Like I was like, I cannot <laughs> I, sit still. I can still. imagine. <laughs> <laughs> and so I just started with five minutes. I thought, you know, I'm just going to get up five minutes earlier. And, and that's what I did. I used to sit in the walk-in wardrobe and I would just meditate for five minutes. And then slowly that built up and up and up until I ended up doing a, you know, a proper course and now I meditate for 20 minutes twice a day. Now, what meditation does is it allows you to be more present. And I know that everyone's not going to have time to go out and start meditating, but it does bring you that awareness, which is so, so important because most of where our stress comes from is from being stuck in the past or focusing too much on the future. It's the anxiety about the future or being you know, stuck in, in the past in our minds. So the more we can actually become more present and start to notice our thoughts, the better it is for us. And so starting small is really, really important as well. If, you, if you're sort of like, oh, actually, you know, I really don't have any time to myself. I'm not prioritising myself at all. I can't even remember the last time I did any exercise. 
you know, I'm, I'm slapping together meals or, or maybe I'm cooking too much for everybody else, then it's really, really breaking it down and starting really small and just something that you can do that's achievable for you. Like one little thing, even if it's just having a cup of tea to yourself. I mean, you've got to start small. You really do because resetting the balance to getting back to putting yourself first can be so, so hard. And I, and I really, I totally agree. There's so many dynamics in farming families too. And, and it's so interesting because women really do put themselves last and it's become, it's such an identity thing for women to do everything for everybody else. And that's how we get our sense of purpose often is by prioritizing everybody else. And we think that makes us worthy because we're doing everything for everyone else. And, but at what cost? Mm. I always say to people, what is that costing you? Mm. You know, so starting small. And then, you know, now it's like, it's my hobby. Like looking after myself is now my, my number one priority, my hobby. And I love it. And it becomes, really really enjoyable because you start to see the benefits you know my relationships have improved I've got more time I I don't feel busy you know we're coming into this time of the year and I don't feel hectic and busy because I'm able to prioritize my time more I'm I'm as fit as I've ever been you know I sleep well it's so so worth prioritizing yourself but it's also so so hard to get started when you're in the thick of it so intoxicating in the right way, where the opposite, it can be so easily the opposite, so intoxicating in, in, in the wrong way that drags you down rather than a way that lifts you up. Absolutely, yes. And our mind is a very, very powerful thing. And, you know, again, you know, I learnt that at a very early age that our mind has the power to drive us to the point of actually thinking that we should not be in this world anymore, you know, and, and to Dad's point. And we can also you know, use our minds and take our minds in another direction. And it's very, very powerful when we can understand that and work with it. But it's hard. Tell me a little bit about how you are infiltrating the community with this mantra and your experience of mental health. Mm, So, well, I've started my own podcast. I've got a podcast and I've actually now it's it's I've created a business around it. You know, I'm so passionate about it and it took me a long time once I started doing the work on myself and then I was like, well, I want to tell everybody. You know, I mean, it was just I need to tell everybody. And actually part of the learning for me has also been realizing that I'm not for everybody and I can't save everybody and you know, I can't help everybody and people need to want to change themselves and all of that. That is a hard learning as well, let me tell you. Because you just want to, you know, you just want everyone to be happy. You, you know, when you've had an experience like mine, you just want people to live big, beautiful lives and know mm. that they're enough. And it's, I'm so passionate about that. But you have to let everybody have their own journey. But now I actually, yeah, I've started coaching people and I do online courses and I've got the podcast and yeah, I've got the social media. I'm on Instagram and everything. And I basically just try to show people what's possible when they do the work on themselves. And and also to normalise for people that, yeah, life is hard. It's, it's really hard and there are lots of struggles and it's very challenging and the choices that we make really do matter and really do make a difference. And hopefully by me showing up and showing that and, and by sharing what I've been through, it's like, well, it is possible. You know, I know what it's like to feel depressed, miserable, anxious, like my life's out of control and here I am eight years later and I genuinely love my life. Nothing on the external has changed. Nothing around me has changed. Everything outside is still the same. But the internal and the way I feel about life and how much I enjoy life is completely different. And 
I want people to experience that if they want to. If they've if they've got the lights on and there's an inkling in them and they can see that there's another way, then I want them to know that it is possible. I think this. Um, I think the line about it being hard is almost empowering because people are like, oh well, it 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 is hard. It's not something that's been imposed on me and I'm helpless. Um, it sort of gives people the the empowerment to like you say, make the choice and, um, and and move through it a bit more, do you think? Yeah, so what I have noticed is when we, in the mental health conversation, particularly in rural Australia, is there's, so sometimes we just go too far to the, the struggle, like, oh, it's so hard, it's so tough in the bush, you know, it's really hard, we've got all these droughts and, and we only talk about the hardship. So sometimes it can go too far that way, I think, and we miss this whole part of the conversation around, yes, but, or yes, and we can still thrive. You know, there's a lot of coping and we're all surviving and we can cope, we can get through it, but there's not many people who are genuinely thriving. Mm. And so often I think that's the part of the conversation that's missing. And then also there's this whole, like, we don't talk about the struggle either. There's a lot of different dynamics to it, but I agree with you in that some people don't even realise that they're not the only ones who feel like this. You know, when I tell people that you are not your thoughts, you know, you're not your thoughts and you actually can choose your thoughts. Like sometimes people, well, most of the time they're like, what? I didn't even realise that. Like, and and also, oh, you mean I'm not the only one that feels like people are going to judge me or that I'm not enough or, you know, worry about what other people think. And so just normalising these really human experiences that we all have is super powerful for people. And then it's like, yeah, and actually there's something you can do about it. <laughs> so... <laughs> It's, it's the whole spectrum of, yes, you're having a normal human experience. You're an absolutely normal person. There is absolutely nothing wrong with you. And there's actually some things you can do to make it easier for yourself. Yeah. And not, not to say that you're the only person that's doing this. There's lots of conversations um, similar to this happening everywhere. But do you think we collectively are um, getting better at, at this now or has it been a couple of years in the works? Like I'm interested to know your perspective as to when you lost your dad um, and then your own journey and where you reckon we're at with it now? I I think we've come a long way. Things are changing, but there's still a long way to go. And I think there's still a lot of, there is a lot of struggle still, you know, And, and there's, you know, I mean, we always use suicide rates as the measure of, how things are going but there's a whole lot more to it you know and yes that's the extreme and I mean I think I heard recently that actually the numbers have declined a little bit recently or you know that I think that was across Australia but the but the reality is there's also a whole lot of people who are just in survival who are really struggling you know and I keep hearing more and more especially at this time of the year especially this year so many people just feeling overwhelmed burnout coming out of lockdowns which is a whole other period for people so much going on in people's lives and so I I still think there is a long way to go and that's why these conversations are so so important and I think the pressures of just society are just they don't go away you know Mm -hmm. the the world that we live in is it doesn't have a lot of room for expanded emotional intelligence and for people to really understand themselves and still in the country there's a lot of people who don't see that there's another way so I still think that we've got a long way to go but I'm very encouraged that there are a lot more conversations happening for sure so could I ask you 
for some tips in the lead up to Christmas. This is such a busy time and really confronting time for some people and a really joyous time for other people. But the pressure to, you know, have the best time is really on this year. What are maybe a few steps that people can incorporate into their day to help them get through in the best way possible? Absolutely. So glad you asked this. And I would highly recommend Meg and I actually recorded a special Christmas bonus episode of the podcast on this exact topic because, okay, it's called the Rural Rural Rockstars. Not sure why I named it that with that tongue twister, but anyway, um, the Rural (laughs) Rockstars, yes. And Meg Meg has a podcast called The School of Wellbeing. Uh, She's sort of predominantly focused on teachers, but we do a lot of work together and we came together to record this episode because of this very reason, Sky, because we noticed that so many people are struggling. So definitely go and have a listen to that but so first of all I would just say again like I talked about earlier just stopping to notice how you're showing up just just taking taking a little breath and just stopping and because if you don't notice it you can't do anything about it so can you just stop and check in with yourself and have a think about how you're feeling then it is checking back in with your battery because most of us are just running on low you know, and if you think about it, we can't operate if our battery's on empty. So literally coming back to, well, what time am I going to bed? Can I go to bed a little bit earlier? Can I move my body? Is there something I can do to move my body just for 10 minutes? Could I go for a little walk? Could I do 20 squats? Is there something I can do to move my body in a way that feels good for me? What am I eating? You know, am I, am I just kind of you know, shoving things in in a hurry or could I stop and actually, you know, just have a smoothie in the morning or have a salad or is there something I could do to eat a little bit better? Now, I wouldn't suggest going and trying to do every single one of these things. Pick out one. Like if you're in overwhelming chaos right now, just choose one thing to do. Um, And then connection. When was the last time that I actually stopped and really listened to my husband talking to me or stopped and really listened when my kids, you know, said something to me about school? Can I just stop and really just be present with them or ring a friend? who I haven't spoken to for ages that mightn't be struggling with something. Can I just, or not even struggling, just needs a chat. Um, And downtime, you know, could you just sit down and have a cup of tea in the afternoon and just enjoy it? Like just really sit, stop and have a cup of tea or whatever feels good for you. Maybe it's like five minutes watching or watching Netflix or something, you know, whatever feels good. Pick one of those. The battery is healthy food, moving your body, having enough sleep, meaningful connection and downtime. This is Meg's battery, which I just absolutely love. Just check back in with that and see if there's one area of that that you could just do something to just give yourself a little recharge. And you'll be surprised the difference it makes. I mean, I think often we think that we have to go and do these grand things, you know, go and have a massage or go on a retreat for a week or, you know, I can't Mm -hmm. possibly feel good about my life until I do something grand. When actually it's these really small little things that we do every day that can make the absolute biggest difference. So tuning back into that would be my absolute number one tip just try and get that battery charged up and then another little tip is where can you say no is there an event a Christmas party something that you've committed to or even if you haven't committed to it yet could you just say no you know do you really want to go to that if you don't can you say no like creating space for yourself and having some boundaries which again having boundaries is very hard we think it should be easy but it's not but you know we of course we want to go after the party we don't want to let people down or whatever it is but if you could just say no to something and give yourself a little bit more space and prioritize you know yourself and your family in that moment can make another a really big massive difference 
because we just overload ourselves with too much because we feel like we should. Whenever we're in the shoulds, it's a red flag. So mm. if you're feeling like there's things that you should do, just be like, oh, what if I just said no? Yeah. And see what happens. I was only listening to a podcast this morning that was talking about one of the best things to come out of 2020, and that was that flakiness has become more accepted and that you it's okay now to just sort of say, I don't really feel like it or I'm not going to make it because I've got COVID-like symptoms in inverted <laughs> commas and that's okay. And I think that's right. We are getting better. Yes, absolutely. And it is really about, again, it's just prioritising yourself and tuning into what you need and, and allowing yourself, giving yourself permission to put yourself first and you don't have to do everything. And also the other thing to think about is when you say no to something and when you prioritise yourself, it gives permission to someone else to do it as well. Like the more that we can see other people, you know, oh, well, they didn't go and everything's okay, nobody really cares. Um, the more it gives other people permission to prioritise themselves too and we can all be have a little bit of grace and, you know, be okay with not doing everything and we're still okay. Or the ultimate thing that you could just do is eat an avocado. <laughs> <laughs> I, Great I segue, I, I, <laughs> I can't believe we haven't even spoken about avocados and sorry to be so <laughs> abrupt <laughs> oh, love it. but I'm interested I am interested to, I, I couldn't let you go without talking about that because it is such a niche industry for you to work in and from a farming sense what have you had to do to um, create and benefit from that niche over time well it's I don't know if it is a niche anymore. Unfortunately, there's more and more people growing avocados now, which has meant right. <laughs> a big price decline. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's a, they're such a great thing to grow. Avocados, I'm so glad you asked because everyone always wants to know about avocados. Whenever I ever, If I ever get asked to go and speak on anything, if all the questions are always about avocados because it's, it's much easier to ask about them. But they're such a beautiful fruit. Like they're just, they're just the best thing to grow. They're so, so good for you. and there's just so many benefits and we, we've, we've looked into, it's interesting with our business actually, because when we first came back, we thought, oh, well, we're going to have to sell direct and we're going to have to do farmer's markets and we'll sell direct to cafes and we'll value add and we'll do all this stuff. And then we sort of realised that actually all that stuff is really hard work and when you've got any sort of scale, don't actually make a lot of money out of those things and then you're dealing with lots of different people so our business model's gone full scale and we're back to the wholesale model now which is really interesting we do actually also have an online shop um, that we sell avocados online which has been good but it's you know it's like everything it's, it continues to be a challenge in that the wholesale system works so well it's so simple it's so straightforward but you then are a price taker which means, you know, you're really a victim to very, very highs and lows, mm. which is always a challenge. But it is a, it's a, it's a simplified business model for sure and it does work. So, yeah, ongoing love, challenges there. I love that you created an online store for avocados. Like how, how wonderful is that? And has it, has it converted? Like is it a hit? Yes, it has been. And then, it's, well, we sort of, we did it with our own avocados first. So we started off with just barum avocados, like just using ours, and it was doing really well. And then 
it just got a bit challenging with the phrase and all that sort of thing. And then we stopped doing it for a couple of years and then we started again and now we use, it's called the Avo Club and we use avocados from all over the place because we wanted to do it all year round so that we could offer it as, as a year round subscription. So yeah, it's working well. It's, it's still got its challenges in terms of the freight. When we first started doing, we used to use Australia Post, but they've stopped uh, shipping perishables now. So we have to use freight companies and it is actually, I think, for anyone entrepreneurial out there, like there is a really big opening. It's, it's tough in Australia in terms of freight. And I think food transport has a long way to go. I think, you know, in America, there's so many options for delivery of food, but we're very limited here. So that does cap it a little bit because there's only certain places you can get it to and all that kind of thing. But people do love it. Like it is pretty cool being able to get avocados delivered to your door. And there's more and more of that food, you know, delivery happening, especially we saw that through COVID. So, yeah. So just tell me about what the avocado, what, what the Avo Club is. So it's a subscription service. You can also get one off deliveries as well, but it's a subscription service. So you sign up and you get a box of avocados delivered every month, but we can only do the capitals like Sydney and Melbourne because we actually send it down to the Melbourne, um, warehouse and they deliver it from there with a freight company so it's only those sort of two capital cities and then, and that's where it is a bit limited but yeah it's basically you get and we get whatever ever whatever avocados are in season and they get delivered to your door so it's a bit of fun that's the best but i can't get it here at gunning so hopefully that changes one day. <laughs> <laughs> i'll just drop some through to you on the way past sky when we're going it's not that far uh, off the road to orange is it <laughs> uh well thank you so much katrina this is this has been such a wonderful chat and um, so much value in that. And I've gone well, well, well over time. So it's been a delight <laughs> learning from you and thank you. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Sky. And yes, I can talk a lot. I apologise for that. But thank you so much for having me on. It's folklore in Australia, especially for people in the bush, that we are hardworking men and women. But this interview really made me reflect maybe we're working hard in all the wrong areas. As Katrina says, maybe we're working too hard in our minds, which is driving these feelings of overwhelm, of not getting enough jobs done, and the glorification of busyness. I, since recording this interview, have certainly reframed some parts of my day as a result of a few light bulb moments thanks to Katrina. What a bright spark, and I certainly think the community of Barham is lucky to have her. A reminder too that if you or anyone you know would like to seek help, assistance and support, it can be found by calling Lifeline on 13 11 14 or Beyond Blue on 1300 22 46 36. We'll also have some online resources in our show notes. Thank you to today's sponsor, Motherland Australia. And if you're freaking out about the last minute Christmas gift that you've forgotten to buy or order online in time, then just do yourself a favour and take the easy but equally fabulous option of gifting a Grazy Her two to three year subscription at grazyher.com.au, which comes with the added extra gift of a Grazy Her and RB Sellers Collaboration 2022 Diary. We'll be back next week with another Life on the Land story.